The last time we read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, the king had said to their friend Daniel, Truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. At the end of chapter 2. Daniel was promoted as ruler over Babylon and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were made senior administrators over the province of Babylon too. But as is common with important moments of spiritual awakening for a person, you can um, lose it after a while if you don't work at your faith. You know, you, you might have converted at one point, but then if you don't exercise that faith, if you don't keep thinking about God, learning about God, submitting your life to him, committing yourself to a, a community of believers, if you don't keep working out your faith in fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, then you can, over time, forget that significant moment. It's like a marriage. You have a wedding day. If you don't, then after that special wedding day that's full of romantic fireworks, keep committing to your partner, then you'll lose the love. So this is what has probably happened between the end of chapter 2 and the start of chapter 3 for King Nebuchadnezzar. He's forgotten that, that epiphany that he had. Um, he had built up his empire over those years in, in between those two chapters and it, it had gone okay. There had been some issues of instability. In 594 BC, he suppressed a rebellion in Babylon and he had to travel out to some of the um, provinces to collect the tributes. So it was going okay but not great and he had to bring unity. He wanted to rule with power and might. He didn't just want to be the head of gold like in the dream that he'd had in chapter 2. He wanted to be the whole statue of gold. This story is exciting and would make a great movie, I reckon. Seriously, they've made Exodus, now they need to make Daniel. How good would it be? Especially the second half of the book of Daniel. That'd be three three-hour movies. 3D. Um, it's got a violent king, it's got heroes, it's got scary bits. And the central conclusion of the story is inspiring. So to help read it, I'm going to think of it like a movie with scenes. There's four settings or four scenes. There's on the plain of Jura, that's scene one, or the paddock of Jura, as we say in Australia. Scene two is in the king's presence. Scene three is in the furnace. And scene four is next to the furnace. So let's go through each of these four scenes and see what happens. Scene one, on the plain or the paddock of Jura. The statue is about 30 metres tall, like a nine-storey building. When Joe and I went to New York in 2010, we got on the ferry and we went to the Statue of Liberty. That's about that big, maybe slightly bigger. And it's just imposing and it's full-on and amazing and inspiring. Think of that, but gold, gold-plated. It takes your breath away. The statue represented the king as well as the Babylonian gods. He had already been warned in his dream that other kingdoms would come and replace his, but this statue wouldn't have feet made of clay and iron. No, this statue would be solid from top to bottom, so he thought. So the king brought in all of his officials, all of his administrators, his public servants, and uh, this was his way of trying to strengthen the empire and to bring unity. They would all bow down to the statue. So the herald... He's like the big worship leader announcer with his wireless microphone. Stood there with the worship band, which had a horn, a flute, a zither, a lyre, a harp and a pipe. Makes me want to get that for our band at Mary Creek. 
and he announced that when they started playing, everyone would have to face down with their face on the ground uh, to worship the statue, bowing down. And anyone who refused should be thrown um, and killed. And they, they'll be killed and turned into, you know, mincemeat. Um, that'd be, yeah, there's a kind of an interesting way if you, um, the, in the original language, it's kind of like you'd be true to bits or, yeah, you'd, you'd be not, nothing. Maybe we should make that for Mary Craig, a little sign on the door. If you don't worship properly, you will be mincemeat. <laughs> Whenever countries or companies or even community organisations start to kind of um, be in trouble, maybe the, the, the money is going down or the numbers are going down or, or there's division... Often leadership tries to bring unity by creating rules and harsh rules to hold it, hold it all together. And that's what he's doing here. The furnace was for making bricks. There's this furnace that, he's gonna, um, that we see in the, in the story in the distance. And if you picture this giant statue over one side of the paddock, not far away is this fiery furnace, shaped like a cone probably with a hole in the top and a door at the bottom for, for cooking the bricks in. If you've ever worked with clay in a kiln, um, that's the furnace we're seeing that um, people are going to be thrown into if they don't bow down. Mince meat. So the band starts playing their song, whatever it is, and as soon as the first blast of the trumpet, the zither, gets played, they all bow down onto the ground like mindless robots. They just do what the king says. Well, I guess they don't want to be killed. Fair enough. And the king looks over his field and he sees everyone bowing down and he could see a mass of people lying face down before the golden statue. So he's achieved his goal of bringing unity. Okay, that's the end of scene one. Start of scene two. In the king's presence. Verses eight to twelve. Now not long after he was feeling satisfied with his success of religious leadership, he's shown that there was rebellion by some of the Jews. When it says the astrologers denounced the Jews, it translates as eight pieces of the Jews or made mincemeat of them. Here we go, starting. I suspect there might have been some jealousy amongst the Babylonian astrologers towards these Jews who had been shown preference by the king over the Jews. The charges that they brought to the king were serious. They're ignoring you, said the uh, Dibidovas. They're breaking the civil and religious laws. This is rebellion at the highest ranks. They even quoted the king back at him. You know you're in trouble when that happens. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. Remember what you said? They'll be thrown in. They'll be killed. They'll be murdered. You've got to do it now. They had the three Jewish men cornered. Verses 13 to 15. So the king responds. And you know, remember, he, he's got a soft spot for these particular men. Is it true? No, is it true, said the king. Perhaps he suspected some political rivalry at play here. So he gave Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego an opportunity to do what he said. And uh, another chance to conform. He repeated the command and the consequence of rebellion. Now what would you do at this point? If you're Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, if you were in this situation of being thrown into the furnace, being turned into mincemeat, cooked on the barbecue, so to speak... Um, what would you do? It's hard to even conceive of this scenario. The other night I was watching a program about um, the Lint Cafe hostage incident in, um, back in December in Sydney. 
and how the attacker made some of the hostages hold up a, um, a flag that said something about Allah is the one true God or something like that, and threatening to shoot them if they didn't follow what he said. This terrorist was the nutcase. But I guess Nebuchadnezzar sounds like a bit of a nutcase too when you read, don't you? What would you do in that scenario? If a crazy man asked you to hold up a flag that said Allah is the one true God. I suspect with a gun to our heads, most of us would hold up the flag. We would be worried for our lives. We would be thinking of our family. I know if I was in the cafe, I would be thinking of Joe, Leo and Ezra. And I would be thinking... God, God understands and I'll, I'll just pray to Jesus while I'm doing this I don't want to have my head blown off I would be stressed out of my brain if you're like me you would probably justify it by saying to yourself that you don't really mean it God will understand I'm not sure that my faith is strong enough to do what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did but who knows what I would do in that context, in exile, with the faith that they've got in that moment. Earlier in the service today, Andrea read out the Ten Commandments. And the second commandment did clearly state, you shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth and here's the bit, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. It's clear, isn't it? So far, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have kept the law. Why change now? The king's question to them must have been ringing in their ears. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God will be able to rescue you from my hand if I throw you in that fire? Daniel's friends weren't sure what God would do, actually. Verses 16 to 18 says this. They, they respond to him. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will de deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, that's the key bit, hold that, but even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There was no promise to protect the Israelites from fire like this. God had delivered the Israelites in lots of ways over the years, but never before from fire like this, and yet they would not bow down to the statue. So they just had no idea what would happen, but they wanted to keep their obedience. Now... If you step back from the horror of this situation and trying to think of what would you do in this situation, which is so hard to conceive, there is a big point being made here about the nature of obedience. Daniel's friends are showing that obedience should apply to our lives no matter what the consequence. So it's not up to us to know what God's going to do. Nevertheless, we will be obedient. He may save us from the fire, he may not. Either way, we don't bow down to the idol. Their obedience was not a deal with God. It was not, I'll do this for your God so that you give me what I want. That's not healthy gospel faith. Is your obedience conditional on God's response? Here's some examples. 
This is a common one. Will you keep your sex life and your sexuality and your sex in your life exclusive for marriage? If you suffer the temptations that come with celibacy, will you give up on your commitment to sexual purity? I think sometimes what we do with sexual purity is we say to God, of course I will be faithful to you, God, on the condition that you give me what I want, which is whatever it is for you, a partner of some kind. The problem with that, of course, is when God doesn't give you that life partner in the time frame that you want and that you've set up for him, that you get angry with God and then give up on your pursuit of holiness. Here's another one. If your boss asks you to fiddle the books at work so the tax department doesn't find out, make a bit of extra money, will you stay obedient to God who comes down heavily on people who rip other people off? Will you risk getting demoted or sacked so that you can stay obedient to God? I mention sex and money because they're our modern-day giant statues that we're being asked to bow down to. They're our golden statues along with power, pleasure, consumerism, popularity and success. Maybe God never provides you with a lifelong partner. Or maybe he will. Maybe God won't prevent you from being sacked. Or maybe he will. If I really love Jo, for example, then I will serve her and demonstrate my love for her. Jo's my wife. I'll serve her and demonstrate my love for her, regardless of what she gives me in return. Same thing goes for our faith in Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about faithfulness in response to his love and grace for us, not being good so that he's going to give us something. It's not a deal where we're owed something by God. And this may involve suffering, or will involve suffering at times in your life. Listen to the Apostle Peter warning the church and picking up the fiery theme of Daniel 3. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal, but rejoice. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego had this kind of faith. Verse 19 to 20 says that the king goes into a psycho rage and heated up the furnace Seven times hotter. He put the thermometer in and made sure it got up really. No, seven times is just as hot as it can go. Ferocious. And he ordered his strongest soldiers to throw the men into the furnace. So here we are, scene three of the movie, which is usually where the action occurs in the third scene. In the furnace. He is so determined to make an example of them, the king throws them in clothes and all. Their clothes will catch fire. The hands and feet are tied so that there is no way of escape. And it was so damn hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who were handling Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. This is a sad day. Now Isaiah 43 verse 2 had recorded God saying this, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. 
And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Is he being literal here? Not time for a Bible study for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Surely they're going to turn to ash, like the soldiers just did. But then the story brings an unexpected twist, the famous twist of this story. The king looks down into the fire on the top of the cone, and he looks at the three men, expecting to see them black and burnt, but he sees four men, and they're walking around, unharmed by the flames. The fourth person has the appearance of a son of God. He looked like a member of the pantheon. Who is that fourth person? We learn in verse 28 that he's one of God's angels sent to protect them, not Jesus, as some of you might might have learned in Sunday school one day. God sends his angels sometimes as messengers and sometimes as helpers. Think of Jesus after his temptation. Um, when the devil flees him, an angel comes to minister to him. Or Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when the angel comes to minister to him. Or the resurrection when the angel comes to move the stone away. The angel came to be with the three men and to protect them. And this brings us to scene four. The king rushed to the door of the furnace and declared that the God of Israel was the most high God. You know, this is like uh, familiar this, uh, this, uh, this, this statement from the king, perhaps he was reminded of the power of Daniel's God. And they, the three men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, walked out of the fire unharmed. So the king called his advisors to check on them, just to make sure this isn't like some dream. These were the same drop kicks that already bowed down to the statue, and now they're here witnessing one of the great miracles of God. Not even their clothes were burned. They didn't even smell of fire. Back in the 90s when I used to play um, lots of pub gigs all the time, you used to be able to smoke. Now, I, did, I was a non-smoker. Nevertheless, I'd come home and I'd stink of, uh, you know, Benfolds or whatever it was that they smoked in the 90s. Uh, you know, uh, that's kind of that stinky smell and you'd be sweaty as well. It was great. It was wonderful. But they didn't smell like that. They didn't smell that smell you get when you're sitting by the open fire in the camping. They didn't even have that smell. God had clearly saved them. God has answered the king's initial question, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That's the God who'll do it. This story would have encouraged the Jews in exile who could take hope in the fact that the same God could deliver them from the fiery furnace of their exile. So while this is dramatic and vivid, God's deliverance of Daniel's three friends was only a small deliverance compared to the fire of exile that he delivered them from when he returned them to the promised land a few years later. I want us to now conclude by looking at Jesus and see how Jesus fulfills this great story in Daniel 3. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who truly saves us from the worst kind of fire. In God's perfect timing... He sent his son Jesus who came to save his people from exile in the kingdom of this world so that they could come to his kingdom. Remember John 17, verse 16. My followers do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And then in John 14, verse 1 to 3. In my father's house there are many dwelling places. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come come again and will take you to myself so that 
where I am, there you may be also. Jesus came to rescue people from their, the exile of this world. And when Jesus talked to his disciples about the persecution that they would soon face, he told them that God would be with them. Not a hair of your head will perish, he says in Luke 21 verse 18. Even all the hairs on your head are counted by God. Do not be afraid, he says in Luke 12 verse 7. Of course, this is a promise that is fulfilled in the broader universal sense. Because we know that millions of Christians have suffered and died. And this is a key piece of theology we have to remember for our own lives as we apply it to our own lives when we face suffering. This is not a promise that God's people will never suffer. But we can be sure that God will be with us as he was with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in their suffering like the fourth figure in the furnace. But more importantly, listen to this. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. John 11 verse 25. Our hope pivots on Jesus' bodily resurrection and the promise that we too will be resurrected resurrected in the body. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, the risen Jesus says, I was dead and see I am alive forever and ever and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus came to save his people from the fire of hell and bring them into the kingdom of his father. Well, once again, Nebuchadnezzar was blown away and praised Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's God. And he evangelizes the whole of Babylon, telling them not to speak any word against this God or else he'd have them killed. So he's not totally reformed. (laughs) He's got a bit of work to do. And once again, the chapter ends with God's faithful people being promoted. The friends of Daniel promoted because of their faith in God. Let me finish with a prayer using the very words of Nebuchadnezzar. Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Amen.